Well, this morning we find ourselves in Romans chapter 11, verses 35 and 36. And I'll just read uh, verse 33 down so we can get a little bit of the context. It says, Oh, the depth of the riches, the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unmeasurable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given him a gift to him, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. You know, this is kind of a doxology before the end of the book. If you look back, there's another doxology at the end of Romans. But Paul is just so full of the glory of God at this point, he just has to throw this in there by the prompting of the Holy Spirit. And it's really sums up and it focuses on the purposes that we've been studying the last couple weeks when we've talked about no one like God. We've talked about the grandeur and the, the, the majesty of God. We've talked about his perfect knowledge. We've talked about the profound wisdom, his unsearchable judgments, his amazing ways. And now we want to look at the majestic glory of God in these last two verses. And um, as we do so... At the end of the, the book, it has a, maybe a more complete doxology because it says, To the only wise God in glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Here he just says, To him be glory forever. Amen. But really, the incredible benefit of God's redemptive plan, the reason that he saved both Jew and Gentile, The benefit of that is that we receive salvation. See, we're a a beneficiary of God's plan, of God's purpose. But see, the purpose in which God saved us was not just to keep us out of hell. The supreme purpose of the redemptive plan of God is not just our salvation. It's God's glory. That's his ultimate plan. His purpose, even in judging those who will go to a Christless eternity, the unrighteous, even that is to glorify himself. His preparation of heaven for the saved and the hell for the unsaved is to display his glory. Because the Bible says it's the surpassing knowledge of everything is to glorify God. In, in Psalm 19.1, the Bible says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, Paul says this, So whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, finish it for me, do all what? For the glory of God. See, all other divine intentions... All other divine purposes fall underneath that. They're subservient to the supreme and ultimate goal of God to bring glory and honor to himself. The Westminster Catechism, we know this. It says, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. When we speak of this word glory, and, and sometimes you wonder, well, how do you, we were talking about this last week, I think, um, how do you define glory? How do you define glory? If you look it up in the dictionary, here's what it says. High renown 
or honor, won by notable achievements. Things like fame, prestige, honor, distinction, kudos. Another definition is magnificence or great beauty. Splendor, grandeur. Another definition is praise, worship, thanksgiving offered to a deity. That deity would be God, our creator. We honor him. But what is the glory of God? What does it mean when we say we want to glorify God? What does it mean to say that he, he, his chief end is for his own glory? The glory of the Lord is, is nothing other than the expression of God's person. It's his expression to us of who he is. It's a manifestation of God's character. A manifestation of God's attributes. Both in the world and in the universe. All for his glory. One commentator says, The glory is to God what the brightness is to the sun. You can't separate it. The glory is to God what is wet is to water. The glory is what heat is to fire. In other words, God in his glory, what that means is it's the brightness, it's the product of his presence. It's the revelation of himself. And you know what? Anytime God discloses himself, it's a manifestation of his glory. It refers to his presence. We sing that little chorus once in a while. Here we are in your presence. See, we know everything that exists in the universe is a manifestation of God's glory. And the reason we know that is because all things were made by him. That's why the enemy, if he wants to attack, attack God's glory, where does he go? He goes to the creation. If he can prove that wrong, if he can attack that and say, oh no, you're just you know, a bunch of monkeys without tails. You know? uh, that's where you came from, the slime and all that stuff you know, that washed up on the shore and eventually grew lungs. And, I mean, it's such a fanciful tale. It's ridiculous. But what it does is it robs God of his glory. Everything that exists is somewhat the results of his nature and projects his person. It says that the heavens declare the glory. Even the beasts of the field give him glory. Everything he made speaks of his nature. They're a disclosure of his person. You can stop and look at a rose and see the glory of God. Or you can look at a giant redwood and see the glory of God. Now, in the Old Testament, Moses, having seen all that in the creation that surrounded him, he wanted more. (laughs) We see that in Exodus 33, where he cries out to God and he says, Show me your glory. It wasn't that he hadn't seen the glory of God before, but he wanted to see more of it. And God answered him this way. He said, no man shall see me and live. You still want to see me, Moses? (laughs) He says, I cannot display to you the fullness of my glory or you would be consumed. 
but I'll allow you to see my afterglow. (laughs) So he tucked him away in a rock and he revealed a small smidgen of his glory. And even that had an incredible impact on this mere human. So there were many times in the Old Testament before, beyond general revelation through his creation, what we see in nature, that God gave special revelation. He revealed his glory in a way that was very supernatural. Here, when he was, he did it to Moses. Later, to the people, as he came down from the mountain and he had the glory of God coming off him, they were awestruck. Well, even Adam and Eve walked in the garden with God. The Bible says, in the cool of the day, and his presence was there, in a cloud of light, and they saw his glory. In Leviticus chapter 9, verse 6, Moses told the people that the glory of the Lord was going to appear to them, and it did. Or in Exodus chapter 16, when they were in the wilderness, and God was feeding them with manna, and the manna came, and it was provided for them, and the Bible says, the glory of the Lord was seen. Or on Mount Sinai, when Moses went up to commune with God, and the glory of the Lord covered the mountain, and it covered Moses. So the people could not see it either. That's Exodus twenty four fifteen, Or in Exodus chapter 40, where they completed the tabernacle. You remember the glory of the Lord filled the tent of the congregation, it says. Or you come to Leviticus chapter 9, when they were dealing with the priesthood, and it was initiated, and the priestly ministry was defined. And it was set apart unto God. And at that very initiation of the priesthood, priesthood in Leviticus chapter 9, it says, The glory of the Lord was seen. Or in Numbers chapter 14, verse 10, when the people had reached Kadesh Barnea, and instead of entering into the promised land by faith, you remember, they began to murmur, and they began to complain, and they began to rebel. And the Bible says the glory of the Lord appeared. Later on, after God had established the priesthood, there were three men, Korah, Dathan, and Abram, who decided that they would take it upon themselves to do this priestly function. And they defiled that holy office of the priesthood. And the Bible says in Numbers 16 that the ground opened up and swallowed them up. And in Numbers 16, 19, the verse says... That the glory of the Lord appeared. In that same chapter, later on, when the people rebelled against Moses and Aaron, the glory of the Lord was manifest. And it said, it says to threatened, and it threatened to consume them in a moment. Or when they were wandering in the wilderness, according to Numbers 20, they became thirsty at Meribah. And in the midst of their thirst, Moses and Aaron fell prostrate before the Lord in prayer on behalf of on their behalf of the people, and the glory of the Lord was there. First Kings chapter 8, verse 11, it says that they completed the temple. When they did that, the glory of the Lord came and it filled it. When they had the first offering in the temple, in Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 1, it says the glory of the Lord was seen and the people fell down and worshipped. See, 
You have to understand, God not only revealed his glory in creation, but God revealed the glory, his glory, in very special ways through the Shekinah glory. And every time you read, whenever the glory of the Lord appeared, you walk away scratching your head. You wait, how does this happen? It's always a puzzling time when the glory of the Lord appears in Scripture. You walk away with more questions than you do answers. If you don't believe me, read one of the texts in Ezekiel, the first couple chapters, talks about the glory of God. You read through that text and you, by the time you're done, you're going, what, what's he talking about? Is this guy on something? What's going on here? I mean, this is crazy stuff. We don't understand it. Why? Because it's talking about God's glory. I just kind of want to boil it all down. We can't possibly understand all of God's glory. But I want us to look at two aspects. Two aspects of God's glory this morning. The first is what we call His intrinsic glory. The glory which is part of His very being, His nature. Something that is part of who He is. It can't be separated from Him. Because glory is the very essence of God. The manifestation of who He is. It's that which He possesses Himself. He cannot be given to Him, and it can't be taken away from Him. It's that essential glory for which Moses longed to see when he cried out, Show me your glory. Or in Isaiah chapter 6, when the seraphim declare before the Lord in Isaiah's heavenly vision, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full, what? Of his glory. Isaiah 6, 3. It's that glory which Stephen proclaimed before the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 7, verse 2. Hear me. Brethren and fathers, the glory, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham. It's that glory which was in Jesus, the glory of God's full grace and truth. That's what was displayed at the transfiguration. That's God's intrinsic glory. Well, there's a second aspect of God's glory. The glory that is given to him. When we glory God, we give God glory. It's that honor that men and angels render to him. That glory does not add in the least to God's intrinsic glory. Because his intrinsic glory is perfect and it's complete. It's just an affirmation of the glory of God that he has already in himself. And it's when we see that, we, we wow, we, we glory, give glory to God. It's that glory that the priestly choir sang in 1 Chronicles chapter 16. When David brought the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. It says this in verse 23, it says, Sing to the Lord all the earth, proclaim good tidings of his salvation from day to day. 
Tell of his glory among the nations, his wonderful deeds among all the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. We've been looking at God's glory and we've been looking at the incredible aspects of God's glory. There's three reasons why God is glorious, basically. First of all, we've gone over the first two here. His perfect knowledge. You see that in verse 34. For who has known the mind of the Lord? It's a rhetorical question. Obviously, the answer is no one. You don't know what God is thinking. We don't even become close to what to know what God is thinking. His knowledge is so infinitely beyond ours. We also looked at his profound wisdom, also found there in verse 34. Because it says, not only who has known the mind of the, the Lord, but who has been his counselor. I mean, sometimes we think we're God's counselor, but we're not. <laughs> the answer, once again, is no one. No one can counsel God. No one can possibly advise God so that he can do a job of governing the world better or more efficiently. Maybe we like to think we can, but we can't. And today, in verse 35, we're faced with the third reason, his all-sufficiency. It says there in verse 35, "...or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid." Now, we've covered those first two questions before, but let's look at the third here. Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? Answer, once again, is no one. God is not a debtor to anyone. What we give to God is only what he first gave to us. We took up an offering here today. That's part of our worship. That's part of us bringing to God an offering for the work of the ministry here and the missionaries that we support around the world. But don't think for one minute that God needs your offering. That's not why we give an offering. He doesn't need it. I mean, you hear some of these television preachers, you know, on TV, you know, oh, you gotta, yeah, we need this, we need that, and they're whining about finances as long as the, the day is long, and it's just ridiculous. I just want to say, hey, if God isn't providing, then cut the power cord, you know, and probably be a lot better off. But they're constantly begging, begging, begging. Now, I'm not saying we don't, you know, we have a little radio program, we let needs be known. But we're never going to beg for funds. Why? Because we know that, you know what? God is sufficient to meet the needs. One of the probably most generous offerings that was ever taken. You remember King David and he wanted to build the the temple. We couldn't because he was a man of war. So his, his young son Solomon was being left behind to rule the kingdom and build this magnificent temple in Jerusalem. I mean, that was David's dream, but he couldn't do it. God didn't allow him to do it. 
But God did allow him to do one thing. He allowed him to take up an offering for the building of the temple. And I mean, this was an offering beyond all offerings. I mean, we've, we've taken up some offerings in this little church. And, you know, sometimes it's maybe a love offering for a speaker or whatever. I've actually had speakers at the end of the weekend at a conference say, you know what, I can't take that check. I don't, hey, you have to take it. You know, this is why it was given, you know, and it was very generous. See, well, one of the most generous offerings that was ever taken was taken up by David. Out of his own personal wealth, he gave 3,000 talents of gold, 7,000 talents of silver. That converts to about 110 metric tons of gold and 260 metric tons of silver. That's just from him. And then the other families gave too. They gave 5,000 talents of gold, 10,000 talents of silver, 18,000 talents of bronze, and 100,000 talents of iron, plus many, many other stones and gems and all kinds of things. This was all to build this temple. Now, there's a lot of discrepancy on what that would be worth today, but a lot of commentators say, you know what? It would be in the hundreds of millions of dollars. Hundreds of millions. You would think after you took an offering like that, David would push his chest out a little further and say, hey, yeah, I took this offering. But that's not what David did. In 1 Chronicles chapter 29 Verses 10 to 13, David praised God according, acknowledging that it was because of him that the people were able to give what they gave. And he says this in 1 Chronicles chapter 29. He says, his prayer of dedication said, Praise be to you, O Lord, God of our father Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor. For everything in heaven and earth is yours. Yours, O Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. Wealth and honor come from you. You are the ruler of all things. In your hands are strength and power to exalt and to give strength to all. Now, our God, we give thanks and we praise your glorious name. But he also continues in verse 14. He says this. His next words are this. But who am I? And who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? For everything comes from you. And we have given you only what comes from your hand. See, that's a very important acknowledgement that David threw in at the end of that prayer. What was he saying? He was saying, you know what? The people have given in such a generous manner... And it's only because of your grace. It's only because of your mercy. Because of what you have first given to us. It reminds us of God's self-sufficiency. Of God's sovereignty. Of God's independence. As Christians, sometimes we think, we start thinking a little more about ourselves than what we ought. And we think somehow, in some warped way, that God needs us. He doesn't need any of us. Does he choose to use us? Definitely. And I pray that we would be obedient to that call on our lives. We have nothing to add either 
to who God is or what he does, though. The point is this. You cannot place God under obligation to ourselves by giving to him. That's how we think. That's how the word of faith movement thinks. You know what? If you give a hundred bucks, you'll get a thousand back. God has to do that. No, he doesn't. There's a lot of widows out there that tried that and it didn't work. And then they couldn't pay their mortgage. The word of faith teacher doesn't care. He's sitting fat, dumb, and happy in his little castle driving his $100,000 car, driving around in his Learjet and his helicopter. He doesn't care about the, the poor lady that gave the last of her remains because he promised that God would reward her based on what she gave to his ministry. See, we cannot place God under obligation to ourselves by giving to him. Our contributions equal nothing. I mean, you know, we have nothing to give to God, and that's what Paul is saying here. He's taught in so many different ways throughout this book. If you remember the first four chapters of this letter, he talks about being justified by grace apart from human works. Romans 1 through 4. And he says, you know what? You are so humanly depraved and you're so impotent in and of yourselves. You can't help yourselves. God had to reach out and justify you by his grace. It would never happen any other way. It's through faith. And then secondly, we're sanctified by the Holy Spirit apart from works. That's chapters 5 through 8 of Romans. You remember when we went through those. It means that just as we have nothing to contribute to our justification, we also have nothing to contribute to our sanctification. I mean, it's true that there are things that we do because we have been saved and that we will do them if we truly are saved. There's God has provided good works for us to do. But that does not mean that we give anything to God in this area. What we do is a response to what he has already done in our lives. See, we have to get out of our minds that somehow, you know, we're earning something by being here on a Sunday. Or by helping in Sunday school or helping in the nursery or helping over in the kitchen, the fellowship, whatever it might be. That's not how God operates. God has taken us out of Adam and he's placed us in Christ Jesus. He gave us a new nature. He gave us new desires. And therefore, we follow those new desires. We use what God freely supplies to us and serve him. In Romans chapter 8 at the end there, it reflects this persevering faith. And it's focused totally and entirely on God. Look at verse 28 of Romans 8. Just turn back a couple pages. It says, we know that God, in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to, to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. 
The next verse, 31, tells us that God is for us. Verse 32 tells us that God gave His own Son for us. Verse 32 also says that God will give us all things in Christ. Verse 33 says that He justified us. And that Jesus, in verse 34, is interceding for us. And then in verses 35 to 39, He goes through that incredible passage, and He basically says nothing is going to be able to separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Well, why is that? Because it has nothing to do with you. See, that's the faulty thinking of our modern day church that somehow by coming to church or by putting money in the plate or by helping the homeless or whatever, we're we're earning kudos with God. I'm not saying those things don't bless God's heart. I'm sure they do. But it's important to understand that we're sanctified by the Holy Spirit apart from works. It's something that's already done. It's complete. That's why all those things he called, justified, will be glorified. They're all past tense. It's done in the mind of God. And then the third thing here, basically chapters 9 through 11, which we've been in, has basically been showing us that we are chosen apart from works. It teaches that what God is doing in history does not depend on us. Whether you're talking about Israel, whether you're talking about Gentiles, it really doesn't depend on us at all. God is not up in heaven obliged to make us happy. That's not the God of the Bible. Paul teaches through those chapters that history unfolds God's attributes, his love, his grace, his power, his justice, his wrath, and ultimately the manifestation of his glory. I mean, if we could just see that, if we could understand, you know what? It's not about us. It's about God. I read this quotation out of this book is by Mike Horton. It was a book called Made in America, The Shaping of the Modern American Evangelical. And he says this, the older theology tends to produce character. By the end of the 20th century, we have become God's demanding little brats. In church, we must be entertained. Our emotions must be charged. We must be offered amusing programs. We gave up a lot to become Christians. And what little teaching do we get must cater to our pragmatic, self-centered interests. The preaching must be filled with clever little anecdotes and colorful illustrations, with nothing more than passing references to doctrine. I want to know what this means for me in my daily experience, he writes. We have forgotten that God is a monarch. He is the king by whom and for whom all things were made. And by whose sovereign power they are sustained. We exist for his pleasure, not he for ours. We are on this earth to entertain him, to please him, to adore him. To bring him satisfaction, excitement, and joy. Any gospel which seeks to answer the question, what's in it for me, 
has it all backwards. The question is, what's in it for God? Very powerful quote. And that's what he says here at the end here in verse 36. For from him and through him and to him are all things. We cannot put God in our debt. It just doesn't work that way. Sometimes we think we can. Because sometimes we think, oh, we, we, got, we got him. We, we caught God in a fault. Maybe we're not pleased with the way he created us. Maybe we're thinking, well, I should be a little taller, a little thinner. Maybe I should be a little better looking. Maybe you're looking at your job and saying, why has God stuck me in this dead-end job? I could be accomplishing so much more somewhere else. He should be giving me more opportunities. Or maybe, wives, you're looking and you're saying, you know what? Why don't I have that kind of husband? Why didn't God give me that kind of husband? Or maybe you're single here today and you're saying, why haven't you given me a husband? See, whenever we find ourselves thinking along those lines, what are we doing? We're, we're questioning God. We're supposing that the knowledge and wisdom of God is lacking something. He doesn't know what he's doing. And we acknowledge his mistake and he should thank us for straightening him out. Straining him out. And, and you know what? Now that we did that, he's indebted to us. <laughs> so he owes us. That's how modern people think. I mean, it's foolish, but that's how they think sometimes. Remember in Job, Job 42.3, who has ever given to God that God should repay him. And then he experienced those same things. In Job 42, 3, he says, Surely I spoke of things I did not understand. <laughs> Talking about all the tragedies when he was asking questions. We also think God, we catch God not only in a fault, but in an injustice. When we see something go wrong in life, we say, God, that's not right. That's not fair. Reminds me of Abraham in Genesis chapter 18, verse 23 to 25, when he's questioning God, will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in that city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of 50 righteous people? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treat the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? And you know the story as it ends. The problem was that there's none righteous. No, not one. God did spare Lot and his wife from destruction. She got destroyed anyway, basically turned into a pillar of salt. But we look at that and we think of the cities and they were blotted out and the inhabitants killed throughout the Old Testament. And you say, God, that doesn't seem right. I mean, you're talking children and babies and animals all just slaughtered. 
See, you cannot put God in your debt by crying out justice. Because the moment you do, justice condemns us. If you want justice, guess what? Justice sends us straight to hell. It's not justice we need from God, it's grace. We also do this when we think that we've obligated God by doing some service. We serve him in some way. And I read a story by R.A. Torrey. One afternoon after a business meeting, a, uh, a note was handed to him. It said, Dear Dr. Torrey, I am in great perplexity. I have been praying for a long time for something that I am confident is God's will, but I don't get it. I have been a member of the Presbyterian Church for 30 years and have tried to be a consistent one all the time. I have been a superintendent of this Sunday school for 25 years. And I've also been an elder in the church for 20 years. And yet God does not answer my prayer. And I can't understand it. Can you explain this to me? Well, Tori got up before he spoke and he read the note from the platform. He said, it's very easy to explain it. This man thinks that because he is the consistent church member of 30 years, a faithful Sunday school superintendent for 25 years, an elder in the church for 20 years, that God is under obligation to answer his prayer. He is really praying in his own name. And God will not hear our prayers when we approach him that way. The story says, after Tori had finished speaking, a man came up and admitted that he was the man that wrote the note. And he said, you know what? You hit the nail square on the head. I see my mistake. See, many people make that kind of mistake. Don't think that just because you're serving the Lord, that somehow he owes you something. Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? Nothing flows to us from God because of a debt he owes us. Granted, a great deal, many blessings come from God to us. But it's all because of his grace. It's all because of his grace. And to understand living by grace, you have to understand a couple things. First of all, you have to understand humility. Humility. Humility before God who is infinitely greater than we are. But also humility in terms of our own service. Remember what Jesus said in Luke chapter 17 verses 7 to 10. Suppose one of you had a servant plowing or looking after sheep. Would he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, come along now and sit down to eat. Would he not rather say, prepare my supper, get yourself ready and wait on me while I eat and drink. After that, you may eat and drink. Would he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? So you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. 
See, we'll never get anywhere unless we remember the primary relationships of creator to creation and master to servant. Now, it's true, Jesus does no longer calls us servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, he says, I call you friends. Verse 14 of John 15 there, he says, you are my friends if you do what I command. So God owes us nothing. All is of grace. And out of that grace, out of that humility, comes thanksgiving. And out of that thanksgiving comes love. See, and out of that love, then we are desirous to serve the Lord who saved us. God wants us to serve him, beloved. He really does. But he wants us to do it with the right motive. What we want to do is understand what it means to live for God's glory. What does that mean? We're going to touch on this next week. But I want to close with jumping ahead just one chapter in verses 1 through 2 of chapter 12. Because Paul writes in Romans 12, he says, I appeal to you, therefore, based on what, Paul? Based on just what I wrote you. Brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a what? A living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God. What is good, acceptable, and perfect. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. And Lord, I pray that as we look further into your glory next week, that we would just walk away this morning understanding that you are not obliged to us in any way. Lord, even though you give us everything in Christ... You don't owe us anything. And yet, we owe you everything. And Father, the only way that we could really help with that kind of debt is to give you all that we have each and every day, 24-7. That we would live in a way that's honoring to you for your glory, to the ministry that you've called us to, And so, Father, I pray for those in this room even now. Lord, maybe there's some here this morning who doesn't, has never tasted your glory, has never been transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit, has never yielded their hearts to Christ, has never repented, turned from their sin, and turned to the Savior. Lord, if that's the case, I pray that you would do that work even as we're speaking here this morning, as we're praying. Father, that you would draw them unto yourself, that you would show them their their sinfulness before a holy God and their need of a Savior. And for us believers, Lord, I pray that you would remind us that you don't need us. You choose to use us. And when you do use us, you require us to do what you command us to do. 
We can't just go off and do whatever we want. We are held captive by your will and your will alone. And so, Lord, I pray that you would give us that discernment to understand what your will is each and every moment of every day. That we, we live by faith this life that you've called us to. And we pray, Lord, that you would just bless the remainder of our time, bless our fellowship, bless the food of our bodies over next door. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.